Please take your Bibles and open with me to the book of 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, and turn to chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're in a series, Building a Healthy Church, the message of 1 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul writes to his young protege stationed at the city of Ephesus with instructions for how to order the life of a church so that Christ is honored and the church is to his praise. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, even the snare of the devil. When you read the word devil twice in two sentences, the matter is serious. The condemnation of the devil, the snare of the devil. Christ is building his church and he is doing so in a respect, in enemy territory. Hold that thought. We'll pick it up later. Here we have a letter from Paul to Timothy. Young, timid, and sickly. Entrusted by Paul, though, with an urgent charge. The church in the first century, city of Ephesus, was a mess. You wouldn't have liked it. You might have been part of the problem if you were there. Confident and articulate and ambitious men teaching all sorts of things. You have rank of wealthy people with all kinds of clout in the community expecting, uh, expecting appreciation and clout within the church. Men arguing about petty things and women tied up looking pretty. It's the nature of groups to have leadership. Planned or not, appointed or not, leadership happens. How would that go for this church with all of this going on? Who would lead this church? And to personalize this question a little bit, in our place and in this time, who leads the church? Who is to lead the church? Those with good looks? You might look at me and think, of course, Um, But you'd have to look at the rest of our elder team to know that's not a principle we're working with. (laughs) Those with executive leadership, those with communication skills, with the ability to get things done, should those with the money lead? After all, their percentage of contribution is often larger. Should they be seen as kind of partners, shareholders? Perhaps those with the most history, the good old boys, those who are known well and who are well known. What is required of those who would lead Christ's church? 
And who decides the list anyways? Where does the list come from? And is it different from place to place? Well, in today's passage, we come to a list of qualifications for the office that is called here the office of overseer. The office of overseer. A list from Paul. It's a list from Paul, who's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so this is a list from the Lord Jesus Christ himself through his apostle. A list to help us know what to look for in our leaders as we identify them. A list to help us pray for our leaders. A list to help us give thanks to God for how he has ordered his church to be led and his care for us. A list to call his own leaders as we hear this this morning, elders and overseers, to the standard that he uh, expects. A list to spur us all to get to know our elders. A list to hold out before our children as a recognition of how Christ seeks to lead his church and through whom. And a list to secure the health of his church and the witness of her, her, her gospel in the world. What is the office of overseer? Let's start there. Well, we'll start with the first verse. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the office of overseer is a noble desire and task. Well, what makes it noble and what is the task? We can answer that in part without filling out all that scripture might have to say. We can answer that in part by looking at the words used for this role, the office of overseer. Think about it. At work, if you're the boss, maybe you go by the boss and also the manager or management and maybe also fearless leader. All of those would be ways to refer to you as the one in charge, and all those would get at a little bit of something of your role. The same role, different angles. Well, we have three terms for this office in the New Testament. And in each term, we hear a different shade of what the office or the role is. This role of spiritual leadership. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 5. The apostle Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, the elders a term referring to one's maturity. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And here's what he exhorts the elders to do. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd or pastor. That's where the, the role title pastor comes from. And in Ephesians, Paul will write to the church at Ephesus and speak of those who are shepherds or pastors. So he says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd, pastor the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, exercising oversight. That's the same word from our passage today, overseers. He's using these terms, three different terms interchangeably. And we see them used interchangeably in other places. Titus, to Titus, Paul will say, appoint elders, Titus, as I directed you, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So appoint elders, and here's what those are. An overseer must be above reproach. Three different terms used for the same office. A study of church history will betray confusion on this, and this is where you get some different types of roles. Down in history, these are the, the same thing. One is not like a regional bishop over multiple churches, and others are like local leaders. They're all the same thing. 
Notice he says, I exhort the elders among you from that passage in, in Peter and to Titus, appoint elders. We have only one instance when elder is referred to in the singular, and that's when Peter is talking about himself. He's a fellow elder among you, which means that we should not talk about the pastor. We should talk about our pastors, our elders, our overseers, God's blueprints for his church, which are his call for a body of men to serve in this way. And I am so glad because honestly, for as confident as a man may seem standing before you and speaking for 45 minutes every week, which takes a measure of alpha and confidence, I feel like a very incomplete shepherd for you. And so does each of our elders. And as we know each other, I know the other guys are incomplete too. But guess what? In God's providence, he has gifted us each differently. And together, as a plurality, as a group of elders, God gets so much beautiful work done. And we even pastor each other. So I'm incomplete, and you will learn more about that as the years unfold, and so will I. But in God's design, I am not your only pastor. So if we're going to be biblical in the way that we talk about the church's spiritual office of leadership, we'll speak in terms of plurality. And we'll also look to a plurality of men for leadership. The one who desires to be an overseer desires a noble task, he says. A noble task it is to serve the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, by shepherding his flock as his steward. A noble task to serve Jesus Christ, the overseer of our souls, capital O, overseers, by overseeing the flock of God. Men and women go to war, not because the prospect of losing their lives is really exciting, but because the task itself is so noble. And this is a noble task. But Christ and his people need more than merely those who desire the task and aspire to the task. Noble tasks like military service require certain qualification. Christ is looking for qualified men. Indeed, by his spirit, he is grooming and preparing for us even to identify now qualified men. Qualifications may seem so restrictive, exclusive even, and well, yes. We're familiar with this. Some qualifications are there to protect us. You think of the height requirement on a roller coaster. That's there to protect the kid. Uh, you can get in trouble. You can get damaged if you end up in the wrong seat and you're not tall enough. Some qualifications are there to protect others, like clearances required to get into high security rooms at the labs in Aiken, South Carolina. There's sensitive information. Only certain people can be up close to that kind of detail and that kind of information lest they harm others. So it is with eldership. Here we have ourselves a bit of both, some qualifications that protect, protect Christ's people from getting into the wrong positions, lest they harm themselves, and to protect Christ's people from people getting in the wrong positions. So friends, in light of that, in light of these qualifications that are born of the love and the wisdom of God, here in our passage today, how much Jesus loves you. 
here in our passage today how much he treasures his bride, the church. He does not want you shepherded day in and day out by those who would prey on you, sell you out, or use you. He wants you loved and led and cared for and fed. And as the chief shepherd, this, this passage right here, these seven verses, is how he loves us and cares for us and feeds us. After all, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders some years before recorded in the book of Acts, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. You pay careful attention, elders, to yourselves. You pay attention to all the flock in which who the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And why? To care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own precious blood. These qualifications are part of how Jesus ensures his care for and love for you. Our process at Heritage of appointing elders, our process of identification and appointment reflects the biblical pattern of elder leadership and whole congregational affirmation so that we agree in the Lord on these things. And I won't get into the particular data points in biblical passages that ground our process. There is some latitude in how it's done. And we have an approach I think is healthy. But insofar as we are working with these qualifications, we are, as elders and as the church, actually identifying and appointing those whom the Holy Spirit is making overseers. And what a comfort that is to us, to me. Well, before we get into each qualification tree, let's look at the forest first. Stay at a high altitude. Verse 2 kicks us off. You'll see it here. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. This is an umbrella qualification, a kind of a, a summary. If you could say one thing, this would be it. That's how it relates to the rest of the list. It does not mean that a man is to be perfect, but he must be above vulnerability to public accusation. There is a difference between the everyday growth of a Christian man who is godly with sin, with its repeated pattern of confession and repentance, and then hidden sin and overt sin and unrepentance that would be a cause for reproach. There should be no reason for someone to say of this kind of man, he's a fraud, And have grounds to back it up. And this summary qualification, this principle of above reproach, helps make sense of why this list of of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is a little different than a similar list he writes to a pastor named Titus in another epistle like this. He's using a number of qualifications to get at this idea or summary qualification of being above reproach. And that principle of being above reproach will also help us to solve the puzzle of a few of these qualifications as we go, as you'll see. Including this first one, above reproach, we have seven positive traits. What we could say, things that we should be looking for in these men. And then we have four negative traits. We could say things we should be looking out for. Look out for this, problems, showstoppers. And then we have three qualifications that get a bit of explanation and rationale, almost like these are maybe from lessons learned and he needs to fill it out a little bit. 
And these are things that we can be looking into for those who would be appointed to the office. So things to look for, things to look out for, and things to look into. For each of these qualifications, as we work from top to bottom, I want to clarify what it is and what it isn't. Like last week's sermon, obedience to our Lord here will hang on first, understanding what exactly is being said. And then I'll pepper our explanation with a series of questions for you to ponder. Let's start with things to look for. Things to look for. He must be the husband of one wife. On Friday night, there were, was the last game in the, the finals between the Warriors and the Cavs. And in the first quarter, the Cavs started out swinging. And it looked like it might be a hard game. And then it wasn't a hard game at all. Uh, and so this might look like uh, this is going to be tough. This particular verse right here, even in the last week, someone said, so how are you going to handle that one woman wife passage? It's the, mo- it's the one you pick at. It's the one with different views on. What does it mean? It's the one that will require the most handling. But thankfully, the rest of our passage this morning is straightforward. Will be, will be easy enough. Well, what does it mean, husband of one wife? Literally translated, one woman man. Again, like last week, we'll have to figure out something of what it means if we're going to obey it. Option number one, a man who does not have multiple wives. I do believe this passage excludes polygamy. But given all the ink that sexual immorality gets in the sin lists in the New Testament, to me it would seem odd that the one qualification related to sexual morality would be narrowly prescribing against the appointment of a polygamist. It was not even apparently a great problem at the time. So that option doesn't seem right to me. Option two, what is a one-woman man? A man who has not been divorced. It could mean this, a one-woman man. One woman, that is not maybe at a time, but over time. But this would be a pretty roundabout way for Paul to say what he could otherwise say in very plain terms. For example, he must not be divorced. Also, it opens up other questions that he addresses. Uh, For example, like a man who is widowed and then remarried. Is he a one-woman man? Almost like he doesn't want to step on our toes or something. Not a one-woman man. Uh, He would just say divorced, I think, if that's what he narrowly was going after. And I don't think that is the best option. Option three, a man who is devoted to the woman to whom he is married. A good husband. I'll get into the question of singleness in a moment. But a good husband, that's how I take it. We're looking for, if you will, marital devotion. Marital devotion. This has to do with the quality of his devotion to his wife, not the quantity of women that he is with, although, of course, the quantity of women he is with would have something to say to the quality of his devotion to his wife. A few questions questions follow. Could this exclude a person from this office who is divorced? I don't believe that it must. I do believe that it could. Does this divorce bring reproach upon the man? 
That would be an important first question, back to that umbrella principle. And we might ask, how recent was the divorce? How public was the divorce? How, frankly, messy was the divorce? And what was his part? Was he a believer at the time? Where his sin was involved, to what extent are those sins still a problem for the man? None of these work like a switch that means, yes, he can, or no, he can't be. But these are the kinds of questions that help us to get a picture of the man. And like the rest of the qualifications, we'll see that all of these qualifications involve judgment calls that must be made. None of them function as a kind of litmus test. He is and he isn't this or that. On a scale, we are all, even the best of us, uh, guilty of sin at each of these qualification points. And friends, we have many spiritually gifted and loving servants in our own church who have suffered through divorce and some who serve faithfully and with love and praise to Christ who in the past even themselves sinned greatly in the course of their divorce but have been renewed and have repented. And this church is full of flowers who have been grown and planted and who are a display of Christ's glory even out of the compost of some of what we have been through and even of what we have created. So God is at work to renew and restore and to bring about his new life in the life of all of his, his people. And I do not see divorce as a scarlet D, as one fellow pastor said this last week, that follows somebody around the rest of their life. Those of you who are here today and divorced, we love you. Another question. Does the qualification exclude those who are single from the office? It does not. Marriage was the normal station for most adult men, and so he would address men in the normal station of most men. But a single brother can demonstrate this kind of devotion in his life before he is married through sexual and through emotional purity, upstanding relationships with women. Consider also that Paul was single himself and in another letter commended singleness as a means of fruitful ministry to the church. And many singles in our church serve with great energy and great heart, and we need all of their gifting and contribution. That wouldn't mean if Paul had articulated that singles were excluded from the office, that that would not be okay. That would be God's word. But I actually don't believe singleness to exclude a person from it. Otherwise, when we get to the situation of his household, we would have to say that, they, that each elder must also have children, for he'll speak of the need to keep his children submissive. Now, as we look for this kind of man, we can ask questions like, does he seek inappropriate attention from women? Is he a flirt? Does he indulge in his sexual appetite by looking at pictures of women in undress? If he is married, is he an example of marital faithfulness, a man who loves his wife like Christ loves the church, to hold up before the church and our children as a model? Consider that a man can have one wife and have had only one wife and not be a one-woman man. It's possible for a man to be married and sexually faithful and not to be a one-woman man if his mind drifts 
if he is himself a flirt. And the Me Too movement moment in which we are in right now is a curious and blessed awakening of the conscience of the nation and a reminder of the danger that leadership and power affords. How much more important that those who would lead Christ's church be one women, men. We look for marital devotion. That's what I think Paul is saying here. Not all agree. It's a tricky passage, but I think it's straightforward. Next, we look for self-mastery. Self-mastery. This is a way of capturing several qualifications. See verse 2 again. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded, or we could say he must have judgment, sound judgment. He sees straight. He's alert, but he's not an alarmist. He's attentive to the flock, but he's not always anxious. He's a responder, but not a reactionary. He's tuned into the flock, but not thrown off balance by the flock. His ballast in the many storms that come and keep coming and always will come is the Bible. In his horizon is Christ's return. He is not surprised by difficulty. He is a soldier in his seat. We think of Paul's example in this letter where he speaks urgently and with force to Timothy but with a bright and radiant face and pen about the glories of Jesus Christ. He is not in panic. Paul is a level head in a world of upheavals, and he ever sees the horizon of God's great glory and the reach of his gospel, and that goes a long way. Timothy needs judgment, a sober mind, and we must look for men with judgment, a sober mind. This self-mastery of the mind also extends to the life, self-control, or we could say his discipline. Discipline, he has judgment and he's disciplined. He thinks straight and he also walks straight. His sober-mindedness is paired with self-control. He is not controlled by his lusts or by the dollar or by the approval of people or even the treasure that is his position. He is controlled by the spirit who bears the fruit in the life of the Christian of self-control, which means he can shoulder the tasks that are entailed with eldering. He will follow up with the need of a widow. He will chase down a stray sheep with vigor. He will answer a call or an email or a knock at the door at a very odd or even late hour. His life is not out of control, it is under control, and it is controlled in the service of the church. This man does not need to be micromanaged, for he is himself a manager of himself by God's Spirit. He has judgment, he is disciplined, and so he is orderly or respectable, the word used here. And this is what a life of self-mastery looks like and commends. It's not chaotic, it's in order. He has mastery over his thinking and his living, and this yields an orderly life that demands and commends the respect of others who look in. He's a well-intact person. 
And this will show itself in things big and small, how he handles his time. Is he on time? How he manages his things? Is his car and his home in disarray? How he manages the responsibilities in his life? Does he do what he says he will do? He has a well-ordered life, self-mastery, judgment, discipline, and order. Well, when we're looking for elders, we're looking for marital devotion, and we're looking for self-mastery. And third, we're looking for ministry, ministry. And there are two in particular that we must see in those that God is appointing and raising up to shepherd his flock. And the first is hospitality, hospitality. He's up close with people and he seeks that they would feel welcome. And I'm not talking about having friends over to grill. Uh, Any of us can do that without the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about having people over who need the company and who need the kindness. The word for hospitality literally could be translated love of strangers. And it's referred to in the context of the first century for Christians who would host those who travel through the area, itinerant pastors usually, itinerant ministers, excuse me, preachers who needed a place to stay. And those who would be elders were those who were eager to and busy with the work of hosting. Today, there are plenty of rooms at hotels. And frankly, that's actually the way to care for somebody traveling through. But there are plenty of lonely people who need our company, who need your company. With our kids, we talk about looking out for lonely people at school. And this is the reflex of the Christian. It's our way of life that reflects a love for neighbor because neighbors are people and people, every person is precious. And an elder's home is open to people and his heart and ears are open to their need. And so we ask questions like this. Does he have an eye out on Sunday for those that are among us who are, who are lonely, who are in need of care, who are new? Is he regularly giving his time to invest in people he does not know, strangers? Maybe he has a practice of making sure there's enough food for another family in the crock pot when his family leaves for church in the morning and he just plans that they would make an invitation for someone to join them after church. Consider that if everyone in church were demonstrating hospitality like this brother, would our church be the warm and inviting place that we all want it to be? Is he a pace setter in hospitality? And if we do want a warmer church and a friendlier church and a church with a richer culture of evangelism, we don't need the need of the moment, although it does not hurt unless it is a substitute. The need of the moment is not another program. That's the kind of measurable thing that we love to do. Instead, we need to add a simple priority to the life of every one of the many hundreds of members that call Heritage home. And that priority is simply that of hospitality, the love of strangers. And that starts with elders. And so elders must be hospitable. The ministry of hospitality. There's a second ministry that an elder must demonstrate, and that is the the ability to teach. He must be able to teach. Now, you'll notice if you look ahead to verse 8 in our passage, 
that there's another set of qualifications coming up for a different role called deacon. And we'll look at that next week. Deacon means servant. And the deacon role is designed by Christ for the support of and the strengthening of the elders' spiritual leadership of the church. We'll look at that next week. These lists between elders and deacons are near identical. One major difference that stands out is that elders must be able to teach. It does not mean that that is all that they do, but it means that that is what they do that is central to their work and that they alone are required to be able to do. Which is to say that the ministry of spiritual leadership, eldership, is a ministry fundamentally of the word. This is critical. We have no business assigning men to the role of elder who do not have the ability to teach. That will do great damage to the flock. No matter how well-meaning a person is, they do not belong in the cockpit of a plane. No matter how amazing their testimony or how friendly or how good a storyteller they are or their reputation or executive skills, they do not belong in the cockpit of a plane without the proper qualifications. And in this case, which involves the ability to teach, which is the very thing that protects the church from hell itself in the abandonment of the gospel. And so we ask these kinds of questions. When he opens the Bible to speak, does he make it more clear or more confusing? Does he open his mouth to speak the scriptures? Does he know how to relate doctrines and matters in proper proportion to one another? Or is he driven by hobby horses and fads? When he speaks about the scriptures, whether in a large group like this, pulpit preaching is not required here, or across the coffee table with one-on-one, does he do so to the spiritual profit of others with the word? Does he, as Paul said to Titus, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine? positively give instruction, and also rebuke those who contradict it. Rich requires a clarity of mind and of conviction and a backbone. An elder board full of really nice guys cannot do the job. So being nice is not qualification enough. They must be able to, at least as it is perceived at times, to be mean or simply to lovingly, clearly rebuke. We've seen some things to look for, things we need to see. What about red flags, things that we should look out for, things that we don't want to see? Here, things to look out for, verse three, some negative qualifications. The first one, we look out for drunkenness. We look out for drunkenness. Is there a bottle in his hand? Is there a glass of wine? That does not indicate a problem, even according to the scriptures that we began our service with, which uh, Abe read for us. Wine itself is a symbol of the new creation joy to come and something he would understand his hearers to relate to. But is there a third and a fourth and a fifth bottle in his hand? Is there always a bottle in his hand? then we have ourselves a problem. In other words, is he given to excess? Is he given to drunkenness? 
Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that frees us from addictive behaviors of all kinds. And the Lord's servant in the role of elder cannot be addicted to a substance. We're not controlled by substance, substances. Our appetites are under control. He will need to care for God's people, which means he will need to have self-control in this area. He cannot do the things that are required if he's wrestling with the bottle. And so it's a qualification for eldership that a man not be a drunkard. That should be no, no surprise. Well, the second thing to look out for, combativeness. Combativeness. Now, if, if drunkenness is one of those things that everyone's like, oh, of course, and you know it when you see it. Uh, combativeness is maybe at least in part of its expression more subtle. Is he violent or quarrelsome? Is he violent? Has he punched a man? Has he physically harmed someone in his own family? Some men aren't physically violent, but do they push people around with their words? They're belligerent and argumentative, easily agitated and ready to swing with their fist or maybe not with their fist, but with a sentence, always ready to throw a punch. And so we ask, does he love to be right even when he knows he's wrong? Does he love for you to believe you're wrong even if he knows you're right? And does he believe he's right because he's always right? And does this ever shame on the man who claims Christ lead his arm or his hand or his fist to find its way? across the face or the body of another. We must not have those men in this office, in that cockpit. How do you know if a man is quarrelsome? The force of his words, the length of his words, the volume of his words, the tone of his words, the consistency of his words are all measures we all can get exercised and provoked and cross a line at times and may need to ask forgiveness. But some men are not restrained and they are not self-aware to recognize that all of their opinions and talking are making a great mess for the church. And those men must not be elders. This would exclude some from Ephesus in the context of Timothy's leadership who had an unhealthy craving for controversy, we're told and quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people. So does the man create constant friction among people? And does he actually kind of like it when he's at the center of it? Those are things to look out for. Elders need to be pace setters in peacekeeping, not peace faking or peace breaking. Well, there's another problem at Ephesus besides this quarrelsomeness on the part of some men, and it's the love of money and possessions. And so it's no surprise that it makes the list here. We look out for, for drunkenness. We also look out for combativeness, and we look out for greediness as well. Now, money is tricky. We have it in different amounts, and wealth can and often does signal a person's hard work and their character, virtues. But wealth can also come from a good old-fashioned love of money. And a wealthy man can be a godly man, but there's no indication from the fact of money that he is a qualified 
man. He doesn't say the wealthy can't be elders. That should be clear. He says those who love money can't be elders. And no doubt some of the money makers and money givers in the congregation at Ephesus, which we'll hear about in chapter 6 in the weeks ahead, desired the office of overseer. And here Timothy is being given this to give some backbone to him as he appoints elders and as the church listens in so that they would have discernment to know who should and shouldn't be an elder. Problems with TV evangelists and other scandals should have us on our toes here. The love of money. One former partner in ministry, an elder friend, comes to mind. He was the president of a local TV station uh, in our city. He was very successful in his field, and I can imagine well compensated. He dressed well and he drove a nice vehicle. Now, that's no problem. And on Thursday mornings, you could find him at the local coffee shop before work meeting with another elder for accountability every week, and usually one or two other young men in their late 20s or early 30s who may be elders one day, and was himself with another elder or two nearly responsible for grooming and strengthening and pouring into men who would go on to be pastors and church planters. Thursday mornings at the local coffee shop, that's where he was. At lunch, you'd find him at home for an hour with his wife. And at work, you'd find him treating his colleagues and employees with dignity, famous in the community for that. And there would be a couple characters tucked into the mix who were down and outers and needed an opportunity. And maybe only he knew the situation, but they had employment in a special role, maybe even that was created for them. And on Sunday morning, you'd find him mingling and conversing and connecting people with, with people. He was hospitable. And on Tuesday mornings, you'd find him for two or three hours with the elders praying and strategizing and planning for the gospel's advance. And on one Friday night a few years back, you'd find uh, us tag-teaming and meeting with a brother who was a secret alcoholic, wisely confronting him in love and shepherding that brother to health so that he is flourishing today. And if I send this man an email with a word about anything, even a joke, I almost always get a paragraph back laced with kind words and encouragement and a pat on the back, which is wind at my back, even if my initial email was of nothing the sort. The church is his treasure, and you can tell. He's a lover of God's people and God's work, not a lover of money. And I could say the same for our elders. So things to look for. Marital devotion self-mastery, and ministry. Things to look out for, drunkenness, combativeness, greediness. Now, things to look into, verses four through seven. And here between verses four through seven, we've got three qualifications that each get a little more time, as I've said, and they're, they aren't quite the kind of thing that you just list. They get a rationale, Perhaps, as we've said, because of lessons learned, so much is at stake. Due diligence is in order, and so these are things we want to look into. First, we look into his home, and here we find out that a man's home can save the church a great deal of harm and trouble if it is understood before the appointment. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he? 
There's an argument here from the lesser to the greater. If a guy can't manage his household, how can he manage the church? Apparently, the church and its leadership is much like leading a family. When I was in college, I traveled with a choir in our college, and we'd stay at churches and sing, and I stayed in the house of one pastor. I'm always excited to learn about how their job worked and how the church worked and and pastor types nerd out on that kind of stuff. And he'd, he'd handed me a little manual that they had written on how their church was, was put together. And I noticed the qualifications for elder. And you had like all the qualifications from this passage today. And then it said, given our present day context, it is also required that the man have executive experience. <laughs> it was like, because this is a big organization with money and like levels of leadership, he must himself also have experience in executive leadership positions. Hear me say this. Executive leadership is a gift to the church. Wisdom from the experience of leading people in complex situations with complex missions. But it is not all that we need. We need retail experience and the wisdom that comes from that, social work experience, grandpa experience, military experience, farming experience, plumbing experience. The church is not an organization to be run and driven, but a family to be led and nurtured and cared for and fed. One of the advantages of having multiple elders with their diverse backgrounds. The word used here. For manage his household entails both supervision and care. He says, I uh, must be able to manage his own household. How then can he care for the flock? Well, those are actually two ways to translate the same word, which involves supervision and care. It's the same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan took care of him, the man who was on a hard time. He supervised and oversaw his care, but also personally cared for him. Well, how can you tell if a man manages his household well? Well, are his children submissive? Does he expect and foster an atmosphere of respect for mom and for dad? Which means, yes, moms and dads, it is possible for your children to be submissive and to respect you. It is not luck of the draw that a man would have this. And be qualified, but a matter of his leadership, which may be a point of discouragement at first, but take it as a word of encouragement and a challenge, and then seek wisdom if that is a matter of difficulty for you. It takes work, and a man qualified for eldering will give it the work. Does this mean that he brings about submission in his home by his children by force? By no means. By no means. Consider that it says with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so he treats his children and his family with dignity. He gives them his time and his, his ears and his, his care. And when they are not easy and they're unsubmissive, his loving, hard discipline. His family does not set company on edge. His kids are not all over the furniture doing somersaults if he doesn't want them to be. He thought ahead to train and to practice with and to remind his children of how they greet a guest in the home. Sometimes uh, our kids will say, I'm supposed to look you in the nose. <laughs> That's our trick. Look them in the eyes. That's hard. Okay, look them in the nose. They can't tell. 
and they'll give it away sometimes. I'm looking at your nose. Some obvious questions emerge here. Must the men's children be Christians? Paul's going to write to Titus and he's going to say they must be believers. That word believers could as well be translated faithful, faithful as children. I think we read these next to each other. I think in Titus, what he's saying is what he's saying to Timothy. They must be submissive and in order. They must not have to be Christians. Another question, if this If his children are rebellious, but grown adults, what is the meaning of that? And this is where the umbrella qualification of above reproach is helpful again. Do they present a reproach for him? If they are grown and out of the home, most reasonable people will say they are adults. They account to God on their own. And mom and dad are no longer culpable for what is happening. Some of you have children who have strayed from the faith, and that is heartbreaking. And you may have been... Every bit as diligent as you would know to be from the scriptures with your children from a very early age. There isn't a one-to-one between parenting and the ultimate outcome. It is possible, though, that a child's wayward life later is owing to neglect during tender younger years. And we can repent of that. And God has grace for that. And if that is the case, if, say, the man was passive in his leadership in the home, we should ask, is he passive in his leadership in the home now? That's how a grown child, adult child who is rebellious, bears on the question of qualification. But their rebellion does not mean he is disqualified. But if the child is in the home and under his care, certainly under 18, and is understood to be and known to be rebellious, then that is a challenge to his qualification. How you measure it, it's a judgment call. And that's something to be evaluated. So we want to look into his home. We also want to look into his experience. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Simply put, is he experienced at being a Christian? Is he experienced at following Jesus? He should have some experience at the thing that the elder is leading the church in. New Christians consider That they often grow fast, but not necessarily in proportion in every area. So a new believer may grow quickly in the area of obedience to God's sexual uh, commands for his or her life. But a man who is desirous of the role of elder, while he may be newly converted and obedient in some areas where he was formerly rebellious, may nevertheless be vulnerable to pride and an exploding head. Consider this, literally translated this word is becloud, that he would become beclouded, that he would find himself in a fantasy land of his own greatness. Satan friends will exploit all of that adolescent Christian clumsiness and compromise all of the good growth by blowing up, by beclouding his head, by throwing fantasies in front of him of his own greatness. And Christian maturity, which comes with time and experience, mutes or dulls that effect as Christian growth comes with balance. He needs time instead for the greatness of God to be known for what it is, and then he'll be ready. Well, what's at stake here is interesting. I'm sure you noticed it. The other qualifications have to do with what's good for the church But this one is given a rationale, and it's for his own protection that he may not become puffed up and fall into the condemnation 
of the devil. Spiritual pride is so dangerous. And men, if you desire the office of elder, elder, strongly consider your own vulnerability to become puffed up with pride. We'll consider that in evaluating you. But be aware of the spiritual danger of assuming the office of elder. Like a height requirement on a ride, you could kill yourself. So we look into his home, we look into his experience, and third, we look into his references. Look into his references. Look at this verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Has to do with his reputation. Several years ago, I was on a team evaluating a man for elder, and uh, his name was before the congregation, and, and two came to us with word that he was kind of known uh, in his business practices for, um, at least there were some questions about his integrity and reputation, and that was looked into, and the specific situations were understood, and everyone was clear, those who brought it, and the elders, and we felt good, and we moved forward. But all it took was that situation that would call into question his reputation in the community, and all things stopped until that was resolved. Our God desires all men to be saved, and his church is the, is the display of his glory And so her leaders must have a good reputation with outsiders, which means he at least needs to have a reputation with outsiders. That, of course, is a given. Well, if he becomes an elder with a problematic reputation with outsiders, he will fall into disgrace, it says, which is interesting. How will he fall into disgrace? Well, certainly he'll be disgraced by his reputation, but how is it then a snare of the devil for him? Here's my best shot. Having his name smeared, he falls into the devil's trap as he hardens his heart. How hard is it to have your sins aired, to become known, to have your name smeared? There's something about, there's something about Matthew 18, which starts private and moves to publish, which acknowledges the, the receptivity of a person when things are brought in private. Well, the elder role is a very public role. And if outside the church he has one reputation, although inside the church another, it'll eventually become known. He'll become a disgrace and fall into the snare of the devil. This, my friends, this, my friends, is a reflection on qualifications for the office of overseer or pastor. And yes, yes, the burden of this role is great. And the stakes are high. But greater and higher is the Christ we serve. He, Christ, is never beclouded. He's never beclouded. He was not caught in the devil's snare, but he conquered the devil and overtook his snare. He was not snatched from God's plan to save, but he became God's plan to save, for he is himself a one-woman man, committed to the treasure that is his church, fully devoted to her. What Paul calls, only verses later in our chapter, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, he says, is the mystery of godliness. For Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 
That is an ancient poem of praise to the glorious Jesus Christ that Paul bursts out with after reflecting on qualifications for elders, which is to say, as Jesus, through these qualifications, is ensuring the strength and the health of his church, his own glory radiates through his church into the world. So friends, may God grant Heritage Bible Church many qualified men from here and forever for this noble task that Christ may be proclaimed as we've just read among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these restrictive, even exclusive qualifications. And we give you praise and thanks for the way that you have cared for your church Each of us, me in the course of my life under godly, biblically qualified elders. And I thank you personally now for the privilege of serving alongside other biblically qualified elders. May you equip our men who lead our church to ever more faithfully fulfill these qualifications, to demonstrate them, to lead our congregation in being the Christ followers that are represented in these qualifications. And may Christ and his glory and his victory be seen in his church. To his praise and his glory in the church. Amen.